0: Find other great podcasts like this one at PodMoth.network. Hey, I'm Matt, host of My Second Self and I on the PodMoth Media Network. I'm only asking for a couple minutes of your time so I can shamelessly tell you about my podcast. My Second Self and I is a unique podcast because instead of an actual other person, Alex, my co-host, is the audible manifestation of one of the many other voices in my head. Sounds weird, but it kind of works. Well, sure, that sounds interesting, you might be thinking. But you might also be thinking, well, what kind of pod is it, Matt? My Second Self and I is a comedy show about true crime. What? How does that work? I believe that with the right tone of voice, different voices, and good storytelling, that even a gruesome story about a serial killer can be told in a way that doesn't leave you feeling gritty or gross. Don't worry, I can see you scratching your head. I understand the murder isn't the funny part. Rather, it's how I tell the story that gets you to laugh. So? What kind of stories can we expect? Great question. You can expect anything from serial killers, missing persons, cold cases, conspiracy theories, paranormal entities, cults, and pretty much anything within the general vicinity of weird slash unexplainable is on the table. You can also expect a certain level of professionalism in that I will do my very best to present the most accurate information I can, as well as being entertaining and engaging that sounds like a good time to you, you can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, YouTube, and wherever else you get your podcasts. My second self and I. Tell your friends and stay kind.
1: Hello everyone. Welcome back to the Doe Identify Podcast. I'm your host, Haley. Today is a very different episode because we aren't covering an unidentified victim, but rather a notorious criminal who is unidentified. Today we're covering the case of D.B. Cooper. Just to note, this is by far the most expansive case I have ever looked into, and there is truly an endless amount of sources that I could use and cite, but I hope I've condensed all of this information down for one podcast episode. As always, I'll have my sources linked. At the end, I will give some recommendations if you want to look into this case a bit more because it is truly so interesting. But let's go ahead and get into this case. November 24th, 1971 was the night before Thanksgiving for us in the United States. At the Portland International Airport in Oregon, a man purchased a one-way ticket to Seattle-Tacoma Airport for $20 in cash with the name Dan Cooper. The plane was Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305, a 727-style airplane. He was assigned C-18C, and the flight was to take off 35 minutes later after purchasing that ticket. The airplane was going to carry 37 passengers for this flight and six crew members. This man was described as a middle-aged white male with a dark complexion. He had dark hair, brown eyes, and tan skin. The report of his height varies between 5'10 and 6'1 depending on the source. He was between 170 and 175 pounds and was wearing either a black or brown suit, a white shirt, brown shoes, black sunglasses, and a black trench coat. His luggage consisted of a brown paper bag and a briefcase. He had no accent to the people on the flight, which in the States often indicates a West Coast accent or being exactly from where you're from. So like Southerners don't think that Southerners have an accent. Once the flight took off and the drink service began, Dan Cooper ordered a bourbon and a 7-Up. He eventually handed a note to the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner. The note read, I have a bomb in my briefcase. I want you to sit next to me, end quote. Being a young woman, she was probably used to men trying to pass their numbers on to her, so she put the note in her purse without reading it. Dan Cooper noticed she didn't read it, so he said, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. When Schaffner saw what the note said, she showed it to her fellow flight attendant and then showed the captain. The pilot immediately contacted air traffic control who later contacted law enforcement. The FBI instructed them to comply with the man's demands so he wouldn't set the bomb off. He requested the note back likely to hide any evidence and Schaffner followed his request and sat by him. He then opened his briefcase and had two red cylinders and wires. He had a new note that demanded $200,000 in $20 bills and four parachutes. He specified that he wanted a random assortment of serial numbers, but the FBI made sure all of the cash started with the letter L. The Air Force base near Tacoma offered their parachutes, but Cooper turned them down. He specifically wanted civilian parachutes. The police eventually purchased the four parachutes from a skydiving school nearby, who I will chat a little bit about later. The pilot circled Seattle for two hours while the FBI and airport staff put together the plane and the parachutes. The crew told other passengers there was a minor issue with the plane, so they had to burn some fuel. They, of course, did not want to panic everybody. He had the other flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, sit by him while Schaffner was running back and forth between Cooper and the cockpit where the pilots were. He made further demands, including how he wanted the money and the parachutes loaded on the plane and promising he would release the passengers once he received the money. While Cooper and Mucklow were talking, he would point out geographic landmarks like Tacoma and mentioned he knew the nearby Air Force Base was a 20 minute drive from the Seattle Tacoma airport. She also noted that he was a very nice man, he wasn't nervous, and he wasn't cruel when speaking to her. She asked him why he chose Northwest Orient Airlines to hijack. He said, it's not because I have a grudge against your airlines, it's just because I have a grudge. And keep note of that for when I talk about the many suspects involved with this case. The pair continued talking and he mentioned he smoked cigarettes and offered her one. She asked where he was from and he seemed upset by this question and didn't answer. Eventually the plane landed at 5.46 p.m. He was brought his money and Cooper allowed all 36 passengers to get off along with the first flight attendant he talked to, Florence Schaffner, and the third flight attendant who I haven't mentioned yet. He did not release the flight attendant Tina Mucklow or the three men working in the cockpit. As the passengers departed the plane, Mucklow sat with Cooper and continued to talk with him. She jokingly asked him if she could have some of the money, and he readily gave her a stack of bills. She declined the money as it was against the airline policy to take tips, and this is also ransom money. This was actually the second time he had tried to tip her. He tried to give her and Schaffner a tip from his own pocket earlier on in the flight. So it does seem like he was a semi kind individual who just happened to be doing a really massive crime. Once the exchange was over, he demanded the crew get the airplane in the air again and head towards Mexico City at the slowest speed possible. Cooper clearly had knowledge of airplanes as he talked with them. The plane's first officer notified Cooper that the plane could only carry 1,000 miles of fuel, so they needed to stop at the Reno Tahoe International Airport. Cooper agreed to this, and he also demanded that the airplane had its rear door open during takeoff. Three planes followed behind the 727 from the McCord Air Force Base and the Air National Guard. After takeoff, he told Mucklow to lower the aft staircase. She said she feared being sucked out of the aircraft, so she went to the cockpit while he lowered the stairs himself. Before she left, she asked him to take the bomb with him, and he said he would either take it with him or disarm it for them. While she was walking away, she saw him tie the money bag to his waist. Mucklow was the very last person to see the man who called himself D.B. Cooper. Around 8.13pm, the cockpit saw a warning light that the staircase had been opened and their ears popped from the change in pressure on the airplane. The pilot asked Cooper if he needed any help, and Cooper responded no. I looked into quite a few sources for this case and no one ever really explained what they meant about them communicating. I'm not sure if they were just like hollering from the plane or if Cooper just hollered back no to the pilots and he was on the speaker system on the plane but somehow they were communicating. But this kind of bothered me because they mentioned that Mukla was the last person to see him, but the pilot was the last person to somehow communicate with him. Around 25 miles north of Portland, the plane ended up dipping and the flight team thought that this was when he was jumping. I guess they thought that the weight of him kind of jumping off the plane caused it to dip. The crew stayed in the cockpit until they landed, so they were following his instructions because they were still fearful that he had a bomb on him. At 10.15, the crew landed in Reno, Nevada, and Cooper was no longer on the plane. On this night, it was heavily raining, so the police could not search the area at all. Once the weather did clear up, the police started their search. They searched bodies of water and the land near where they thought he had jumped, but they of course never found him until February 10th, 1980. Over eight years later, an eight year old boy named Brian Ingram found bundles of cash downstream from Vancouver, Washington state, which is right where the aircraft thought Cooper jumped out in total. He found $5,800 worth of disintegrated bills. The FBI analyzed these dollar bills to see what they could learn about them. First, they confirmed the money was from Cooper's ransom and was still in the exact same order as when it was handed over from the FBI. The money was matted together and had evidence of being in that river for a while rather than being buried by Cooper. In 2020, new technology uncovered that the bills were not in the river nor buried at the time of the crash but entered the water several months after the hijacking. Basically what this means is he likely didn't land in the water and he didn't bury the cash to hide it, but over time it ended up landing in the actual water and that sped up the disintegration process. The FBI released the serial numbers to different financial institutions. Although two men tried to report counterfeit bills to get the reward money, they were quickly found out and other than the money found by Brian Ingram a few years back, no other bills were found. Before the money was found in November of 1978 near Castle Rock, Washington, a deer hunter came across an instruction manual for a 727-aft air stair, which is how Cooper got out of the airplane. This is close to where Brian Ingram found the money, especially considering they were flying and these things could have just flown out as the stairs were open and within a few minutes, the airplane could have just passed these different areas. On the airplane, Cooper did leave behind his necktie. The necktie was sold exclusively by JCPenney, but they continued selling it in 1968. The tie had DNA on it, and in 2007, the FBI created a partial DNA profile for Cooper. A team called the Cooper Research Team took a close look at his tie and identified hundreds of organic and metallic particles on it. To the average person, the names of these particles don't ring a bell, at least they did not for me, but the particles led researchers to believe Cooper worked for Boeing, which is an aircraft company here in the U.S. The most significant material they found was unalloyed titanium. In the 70s, titanium was really only used for aircraft manufacturing. From his knowledge of how airplanes work and these particles, it's highly likely he did work with airplanes. Investigators also found hair samples where Cooper was seated. The FBI destroyed one sample after determining it couldn't help them. The second was preserved on a microscope slide, but the FBI later lost the sample. His cigarette butts from the flight, because they could smoke back then on airplanes, were also looked into, but these were transferred to the Las Vegas field office, where they were also destroyed. Later on, analysis showed Cooper didn't jump out where the crew had thought. It could have been as inaccurate as 80 degrees. Experts think he actually jumped out above the Washougal River, which is right on the Washington Oregon state lines. And this is still north of Portland i am so confused by this because they did find the correct serial numbers on the bills further north which my sources are saying that is where the flight crew thought that cooper originally jumped out of but now they are saying that the flight path actually likely didn't go in that area it's very very confusing there's so many sources to use for this case and so many experts who have weighed in At the very beginning of their investigation, the FBI was doubtful Cooper survived the jump. They believe he didn't act as though he was an expert in skydiving, so he could have fell to his death. I wouldn't even know how to open a parachute by myself, so I have no idea how much knowledge he actually had just by reading into things. They believe that because it was nighttime and it was raining, he was likely inexperienced because this is a terrible decision, which is very much common sense. However, Earl Cossey, the supplier of Cooper's parachutes, said anyone who had done a handful of jumps could have accomplished the jumps that he performed, but Cossey said the weather did make the jump more dangerous. In addition to it raining, it was also 15 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 9 degrees Celsius that night. Cooper also never spent the money he obtained, which is even further evidence that he didn't survive. If you deal with chronic pain, muscle soreness, migraines, or menstrual cramps, I am so excited to share one of my favorite products with you. Jovi is a medicine free way to erase discomfort by using nanocapacitors to change the way your nervous system processes pain. To put it simply, it absorbs pain and tells your brain to no longer feel pain in the area where you're holding the patch. Now I know this sounds too good to be true, so Jovi offers a no questions asked 120 day money back guarantee. All of my listeners love Jovi and it's by far the most popular partnership I have. It makes me so excited for you guys. I personally use Jovi to combat the pain that comes with my endometriosis and it has literally saved me from fainting multiple times, especially while driving, which is always great. So get rid of your pain today and invest in a Jovi patch that will last you through years of use. You can save 10% off your Jovi patch by using the code Identify or by using the link in this episode's show notes. Thank you so much to NYX for continuing to partner with me for my podcast. If you don't know what NYX is, it's a company that has absolutely everything you need so you can be comfortable on an everyday basis in your loungewear no matter what you're doing. Let's be honest, most bras are super uncomfortable and have sharp underwires that just do not allow you to relax at all whatsoever. What's so special about NYX is that they have no underwires in any of their bras. All of their straps are completely adjustable and then they also have at least three, to four rows of extender hooks in the back. They have completely changed the game for bras and loungewear and I myself have five NYX bras and I absolutely love every single one. Something else I love about NYX is their accurate representation of models on their website. You will have to see for yourself but everyone is a real human on their website and they're not perfect models that have been photoshopped for hours on end and I just appreciate that so much. If you want want $15 off your most comfortable bra ever, use the link in my show notes and go ahead and spoil yourself and get something that you will feel confident in. Thank you so much to Nyx for always working with me. It is an absolute pleasure. Now let's talk about suspects. Before I discuss the top suspects, there were over a thousand serious suspects the FBI combed through and interviewed. Many of which were people who confessed to the crime for attention. I've never once seen or heard of so many people confessing to a crime, likely because this is so notorious. If you have listened to my episodes before, you will know that I try to keep everything very condensed for the sake of time and brevity so I've weeded out the less likely ones. Also, many of the top suspects have been excluded through DNA in recent years, so if the ones you're aware of are not mentioned, that could be why. I'll start with my favorite suspect for who Cooper could have been. His name is Theodore Burdett Braden Jr. Ted Braden was a special forces army officer in the 101st Airborne Division in World War II. He was a member of the Army's Sport Parachute Club, which was known as the Golden Arrows then, but was later renamed to Golden Knights. In the 1960s, Braden became a Green Beret, which is still a very, very prestigious unit in the US Army. He was also a military skydiving instructor and taught members of Project Delta. He accomplished much more in his military career, including over 900 skydiving jumps. However, his career came to an abrupt ending when he was arrested by CIA agents for deserting his responsibilities while in Congo. He was eventually dishonorably discharged. After he was discharged, he worked as a truck driver for Consolidated Freightways. This is a company headquartered in Vancouver, Washington, which happens to be very close to where Brian Ingram found the confirmed bills that Cooper received as a ransom. In the early 1970s, Braden was investigated by the FBI for stealing $250,000 in a trucking scam, but he was never charged for the crime. Then in 1980, Braden was taken to court after driving an entire 18-wheeler filled with stolen goods from Arizona to Massachusetts. In 1982, he was arrested in Pennsylvania for driving a stolen vehicle with fake license plates and with no driver's license. According to journalist Drew Beeson, he was sent to federal prison in the late 80s, but we aren't sure why. My guess would be the 18-wheeler full of goods if I had to make a guess. According to Beeson, although Braden had an extremely successful career in the military, he was not liked by his peers. He was reported to have, quote, the perfect combination of high intelligence and criminality, end quote. Many people within the special forces community believe Braden was Cooper. Really the only thing differing between Cooper and Braden is a two inch height difference. Flight attendants thought Cooper was around 5'10", but Braden was 5'8". However, military members are often measured without shoes on at their physicals, so in shoes and with him sitting for most of the flight, it's perfectly reasonable for him to appear two inches taller. He did have the dark complexion, short dark hair, medium build, and was around the same age as Cooper when this incident happened. Some people doubt Braden could have been Cooper because they don't think that Cooper had that skydiving knowledge again i'm really not sure about this i feel like 90 of the of people would never do a plane hijacking and fully plan on jumping out of the plane with a parachute especially at night if they did not know what they were doing but also stealing and hijacking is not exactly reasonable behavior braden clearly had the criminal mindset that cooper would have to have had to pull this off and he would have been a knowledge about the specific area they were flying over as well as knowledge about the military base they were near. Braden died in 2007 at 78 years old. In my opinion, the second most likely suspect is Joe Lakick. Lakick was also in the US Army and served in the Korean War. His daughter named Susan was unfortunately a victim to a failed hostage negotiation conducted by the FBI. Her ex-husband kidnapped Susan and hijacked a small plane in Nashville. The FBI shot the plane's wheels when they stopped for gas, and Susan's ex-husband killed her, the pilot, and himself. Lake sued the FBI and was awarded the money due to the FBI's negligence. It's thought that the grudge Cooper mentioned to the flight attendant was about Susan's death. Also, tying him to the crime is the medals found on Cooper's tie. Lakik worked around uncommon metals in an electronic factory, where the patent confirms they work on products with the exact same metals on Cooper's tie. In Joe Lakik's photos, he does have a strong resemblance as Cooper, including the same hair cut and style. Next in my opinion is William J. Smith, a New Jersey native who was a Navy veteran. This theory comes from Douglas Perry of The Oregonian. He wrote a fantastic article in 2018 outlining this theory. How Smith got involved in this case is a little confusing. It seems to have started with the book D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened by Max Gunther. This is a very long story short, but Douglas Perry has a source who is an army data analyst. He read the book and tracked a name mentioned in it, Dan LeClaire, a man who claimed to be Cooper. He determined LeClaire was likely a friend of Cooper, William J. Smith. These two worked together at Penn Central Transportation Co. Smith would have known how to work a parachute and find a railroad that could lead him back to the new area quickly. Smith had a grudge on corporate America after Penn Central went bankrupt and he likely lost his pension. He also would have been around the medals found on Cooper's tie as he worked for a rail yard as a manager. Looking at the pictures of William Smith, he looks identical to the sketch of Cooper. Most interestingly, Smith's yearbook has someone with the name Ira Daniel Cooper. Alright y'all, last one that I'm going to mention for suspects. Next is Walter R. Rekka. Rekka was yet another military paratrooper in the intelligence area. He got involved in the suspect list after his friend Carl Lauren revealed he had Lauren's confession. Rekka died in 2014, but before he did, he wrote Lauren a letter and had a phone call where he confessed to be Cooper. Lauren has over three hours of recordings from 2008 where Rekka revealed his side of the hijacking story. Rekka gave Lauren permission to publish the details after he died and he also told his niece about this situation and that he was the hijacker. Lauren believes Recca landed near Clay Ellum, Washington and met a dump truck driver at Tanaway Junction Cafe who gave him directions so he could be picked up by a friend. Lauren gave the details to Joe Koenig, who was a police officer in Michigan, and he later wrote the book Getting the Truth, I am DB Cooper. Many people doubt Recca's story because where he said he landed was far north of the flight path of the hijacked plane. They also doubt the story because Recca had too much experience as a paratrooper, which I mentioned before. The FBI has decided not to comment on Recca as a suspect, but did say they don't have enough evidence to prove he was one or was involved. In the picture of Recca, I personally think he looks the least like Cooper's sketch, but we have all seen that sketches don't always look like the real perpetrator. One particularly interesting piece of the story is the man who packed the four parachutes Cooper was given. On April 23, 2013, he was found dead in his home in Woodinville, Washington State. The cause of death was homicide by blunt force trauma to his head. We still have no idea who did this, but his name was well known because of the DB Cooper case. Authorities have not been able to link this connection to his death and they have said that they believe the burglary that happened in his home was the reason for his death. In July of 2016, the FBI announced they would be suspending the active investigation to focus on other cases. In 2017, volunteers found a fragment of a backpack and a parachute cord, which many people think could have been connected to the case. Other than the cash not being spent, there is still no evidence that Cooper died after his jump. After his jump, five men copied him and all survived their jumps, so many people, including some FBI agents, believe that he could have survived. Before I wrap up this episode, there is something I want to know about the name D.B. Cooper. So on the ticket, and we do have pictures of the actual ticket that was purchased by Dan Cooper, it says Dan Cooper. But to the media and in all of the books written about him, he is known as D.B. Cooper. This actually happened due to a reporter on the case mispronouncing the name or getting it confused with another story so he meant to say dan cooper but when he said db cooper that is just what everyone knew this case to be called and what this suspect was named from there on but if i kind of bounce back and forth it's mostly because you know it's just a little bit confusing with the media versus what the actual suspects put his name as Dan Cooper has inspired many characters and storylines in 19 books, novels, and comic books. He has also been referred to and in, inspired dozens of movies and shows including Prison Break, 30 Rock, Drunk History, Breaking Bad, and Loki. There is even a conference dedicated to D.B. Cooper. I will link an entire Wikipedia page dedicated to D.B. Cooper slash Dan Cooper's in pop culture but some of the bigger ones are the ones I mentioned previously because they are tied to some of the suspects and that was D.B. Cooper What Really Happened by Max Gunther and Getting the Truth I Am D.B. Cooper by Joe Koenig. If you are more interested in documentaries The Mystery of D.B. Cooper by John Dower is also an option. There are truly so many shows and series about or referring to DB Cooper. It's crazy, even Kid Rock has a song that mentions him. There is truly just so many different things that talk about him. So I will link all of that in my episode show notes. I would normally never cover a perpetrator for an episode, but this man had a significant impact on true crime history. And it doesn't sound like he physically hurt anyone with through this hijacking he likely did in fact scar some people mentally such as the flight attendants but it does not seem like any of the passengers even knew what was happening until they landed and the FBI was there so I felt a little bit more comfortable covering this case but I do want to say if you listen to my previous episode I covered DNA Doe Project cases and I will still be donating all of my profits from this episode from all of my affiliate links to those cases as well so this is all also part of the kind of fundraiser that I have been doing for them so I'm trying to use this kind of notorious John Doe who is a criminal for good to get some money for some victims who unfortunately do not have their names still make sure you go listen to that episode though so that way maybe you can get some knowledge about those unidentified people and possibly spread the word as well all right everyone i think this is going to go down as my longest episode so far i would love to keep doing these i think they're so fascinating but unfortunately with jane and john doe cases there's just not a lot of information if there was information they would have way higher chances of being identified so i hope you all don't mind the kind of change up a little bit But thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Doe Identify podcast. Please remember to leave me a review and follow me on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at Doe Identify podcast. I really love chatting with all of you via messages when I have time to respond to them. So just thank you all so much for your support and your kind words that you all send to me. listening to the Doe Identify podcast. This episode was researched and recorded by me. Editing and production by Michael Colby. Our episode's music is by Coma Media. Tune in next time to hear more cases about unidentified victims on your favorite listening platform. Join me on social media at the Doe Identify podcast for updates to chat about cases. See you next time.